Welcome to Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network, America's favorite retro talk show all about baby boomer stuff and beyond. I'm Mike. I'm Smitty. And I'm Ian. And on this show, we remember a childhood actor who grew to adulthood and became just as famous, if not more, than when he was a child actor. We also have a retro commercial for Campbell's Soup. Mmm, good. And Smitty remembers a radio pioneer. Right, coming back to you. These are the many lives of Jackie Cooper, and Ian Rose has them for you. Jackie Cooper died May 3rd at age 88. Does that mean anything to you? It does, depending upon how old you are. If you are saying, who was Jackie Cooper, then you must be quite young. He was a longtime showbiz celebrity. His recent passing nearly went unnoticed among some of us. If you're a TV anchorman, say 35 years old, then your last known memory of him was when he was uh, Perry White in Superman with Christopher Reeve in the movies, about the time you were in grade school. So when he died, you might have been saying, why should I care about some actor? who played a secondary role on Superman some years or decades ago. Great Caesar's Ghost! That role was not the only thing he did. He was the star of two, count them, two TV series from the 1950s and 60s. At the movies, he was part of the Our Gang series, and he was under contract at MGM, the biggest and arguably the best studio of them all. He even directed episodes of TV's M.A.S.H., My earliest memories of Jackie Cooper came through my TV set, including his appearance on Our Gang, specifically the episode where, as a boy, he develops a crush on a teacher, Mrs. Crabtree. Believe me, she looked better than her name sounds. In the early 1930s, his contract with Hal Roach was sold to MGM, where he was teamed with Wallace Beery. I enjoyed Treasure Island, particularly the end, where, as Jim Hawkins... He splits up with Long John Silver, played by Beery. In the novel, there was no crying. In the movie, there was crying, particularly with Jackie Cooper. MGM wanted it that way. And Cooper could cry. So came the tears. Even though their magic worked, Beery did not get along with Jackie. Maybe it has something to do with kids stealing our thunder. For Jackie Cooper, if you're going to be under contract, the place to be would be at MGM. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, except when Mickey Rooney arrived. Speaking of thunder, Rooney stole Jackie's. Jackie, in recent interviews, said he recognized what a multi-talented person Rooney was. Wikipedia says Jackie Cooper had the typical child actor problems finding roles as an adolescent. He served in World War II. Later, he starred in two, count them, two TV sitcoms, The People's Choice ran on NBC from 1955 to 58. Cooper played uh, Socrates, or Sock Miller, who was a government naturalist elected to the city council. He was green before it was popular. In the series, he married the mayor's daughter, played by Pat Breslin. Sock Miller's basset hound, although no one in the cast could hear her, made comments for We the Audience. The voice was that of Mary Jane Croft. Jackie Cooper also appeared on Hennessy. You're hearing that theme right now. This is on CBS from 1959 to 62, where he played a Navy lieutenant medical officer 
Chick Hennessy at a San Diego naval base. Abby Dalton played a nurse, and they were married, too, near the end of the series. So says the complete directory to primetime network TV shows, 1946 to present. In 1982, Jackie Cooper's autobiography, Please Don't Shoot My Dog, was published. I read it and enjoyed it. The title comes from his uncle, director Norman Turog's threat to shoot young Jackie Cooper's dog if he could not cry in the movie Skippy. Gilbert Smith, Mike Bragg, your thoughts on Jackie Cooper. I remember Jackie Cooper did a segment on Columbo. I think the episode was called Candidate for Crime. Jackie Cooper was a candidate running for a public office, and he committed this crime. I think he did murder. And Peter Falk, uh, Lieutenant Columbo, set out to capture him in the way Columbo could. But I, <laughs> in watching that, and I hadn't seen that for many years, but just we just uh, got notice of Peter Falk's passing a month or so ago. And I think that was probably uh, maybe a, a dark spinoff of People's Choice. I wondered, did the Jackie line. Cooper cry at the end of the uh, episode? Uh, no, but they found out that he was the main suspect in the murder of Cleo the dog. That would have been enough. <laughs> oh, that would have been enough to have made him cry. Uh, yeah. But, uh, no, Jackie Cooper, I, I remember him best in the uh, in the R Gang. That's true. George, back in the 30s. He was a cute little kid, wasn't he? Was he was a cute little kid, and uh, I remember him on The the Champ with Wallace Beery. Yeah, you know, I, I think the only time in his life where looks were a problem with him were in his late teens. Some people, you know, through life, Right. Uh, we get, our looks are either improved right. or done, and I right. think that was the that worst time. Outside of that, he looked pretty good wherever he was. Okay. Uh, well, he was he very, pro- and he was probably typecast. He probably typecast himself. He probably did, yeah. Because he yeah. did he did star in a movie in 1940 called, uh, I believe it was called The Gallant Sons. Oh. And he played it straight, uh, and I forgot the uh, the plot line of the movie, but I understand in reading some of the, uh, the bios, some of the bio books, people who were directing and producing back in the 40s, they had a tough time taking Jackie Cooper seriously, and he did have some serious roles in the 40s in the movies. Oh, is that a fact? Be- because of his role in the Our Gang series and, of course, uh, with Wallace Berry. So he came back around and said, okay, so I can't be a serious, dramatic actor. So he went back to comedy and did very well in the 50s, as you mentioned, in, in People's Choice and Hennessy. So there we have it. We have Jackie Cooper as an actor, a TV director, a producer and an exec. He was a child actor who made the transition to an adult career. He was the first child actor to receive an Oscar nomination. At age nine, he was also the youngest performer to have been nominated for an Oscar for Best Actor in a Leading Role, an honor that he received for the film Skippy from 1931, as I was just mentioning. And he could cry. His career makes us smile. I'm Ian Rose. Thanks, Ian. What a great piece in remembering Jackie Cooper. And um, and he does stand out. He does, he, yeah. He's a keeper. He came in, and you you do read the uh, the controversies and the intrigue about the child stars that had lost their fortunes, that had gone to uh, to drug abuse and alcoholism, and, and their lives ended early. Here you have Jackie Cooper, who was a childhood star, but he was a very brilliant person, too. He came in and, and made his name as an adult, as an actor, but he was also a very good business person in the industry. Uh, he produced a lot of the Screen Gems uh, TV properties. Uh, he was responsible for the series Bewitched. Was he really? Packaging those up and selling them off to the networks, I, I guess in syndication. And he's the one that, I believe this is true, and I can look it up, but I'm almost 99%. He reportedly 
was the one who cast Sally Field in the role of Gidget in the TV series. No kidding. So pretty good stuff. He worked a lot with Jack Webb in the Mark uh, the Mark Seven Limited productions. Mm-hmm. He directed dozens of TV episodes, including Mash and The White Shadow, and he had a quite a stack, quite a shelf of Emmy awards. I was just going to say he uh, in later years he he did more directing, more producing work than yeah. Than he did a lot work. of behind the scenes, behind the camera. Although he came back in what I don't know the year to be exact as uh, the Daily Planet editor Perry White. I think that was the late seventies. Yeah, probably the late seventies. Right. I would say yeah. He well, whatever role that Christopher Reeve, whatever year that was. Yeah, so late that was 70s, probably in the 79, 78. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and yeah. it's yeah. interesting because people our age saw. Jackie Cooper as Perry White, and we thought, oh, there's the little kid in our gang. <laughs> the younger audiences that saw Perry White, with, played by Jackie Cooper, just thought it was an actor playing Perry White. Right, yeah. Had no idea who he was. Interesting, yeah. So well, interesting, amazing. Ian. Very good. Very good. Okay, it's time for a retro-mercial. And we're taping this on a hot summer day, but if it was a cold winter day, soup and sandwich. Campbell's oh. tomato soup, Doesn't that sound good? grilled cheese sandwich, Ooh. and a pickle. <laughs> and a pickle. Mmm, good. Here we go. Uh. All right. Have you, have you had your soup today? Campbell's, of course. Campbell's, of course. Have you, have you had your soup today? Campbell's tastes good. Mmm, good. Have Campbell's every day. You get vitamins that way. to your family. Serve good soup tomorrow by several cans of Campbell's soups. Let your family enjoy the mmm good flavors of Campbell's 21 kinds and bowlfuls of get up and go. Have you had your soup today? Have you had your soup today, Mike and Ian? <laughs> I had a great pastrami about it. Oh, yeah, so did I, yeah. <laughs> you know, as, as memory serves, I remember back in the 50s, I think it was Campbell's that was doing this. Yeah. Now, this is what they called maximizing profits. Right. They were inviting you to take soups that they had that you took on the shelf, and you mix them. Oh. So you could take tomato soup and rice soup and put them together, and you have tomato rice that oh, you made. Oh, interesting. Okay. So two soups to make new soups. Two soups to make new soups. That's, there's some kind of a mathematical <laughs> equation there somewhere. Yeah. But uh, Campbell's soups, I remember that, what is it, the blushing bunny, the, the tomato soup with the cheese and mm. the, uh, I forget exactly what it is, but I... I always wanted to try that. I've never... The Blushing Bunny. The Blushing Bunny. But that'd be something good for a winter day, not for a Quite a concoction. Quite a concoction, yeah. Great cure for a hangover. uh, Yes, (laughs) among other things. (laughs) Rename it Scramble Soup. (laughs) Yikes. Welcome back to Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. We are your retro talk network for nostalgia, baby boomer stuff, and all kinds of good stuff. And now we have our celebrity obits for um, for this time. This time, our celebrity obituary list is longer than usual, and here to tell us about that is Ian Rose. And, you know, some of these deaths came in twos. We were just talking about this. Mike was talking about Lieutenant Columbo, played by Peter Falk. He was Lieutenant Columbo on the TV series of Same. Also, he appeared in films 
and TV guest roles where he was nominated for an Oscar twice and won five Emmys. Peter Falk died June 23rd at age 83. Cause of death was not released, but Wikipedia says he had been suffering from dementia and Alzheimer's disease. Also speaking of association with the role, James Arness passed away June 3rd of 88 of natural causes. He played Marshal Matt Dillon for 20 years, from 1955 to 75, and made for TV Gunsmokes later. On the 50th anniversary of TV in 1989, People Magazine chose the top 25 TV stars of all time. Arness was number six. Did you know that Arness was seriously wounded at Anzio during World War II? A couple of sports figures, May 7th, Seve Ballesteros, a leading pro golfer on the 70s and 80s, died of brain cancer at age 54. And May 17th, Hall of Famer Harmon Killebrew died of cancer at 74. A triple of singers, May 15th, Bob Flanagan of the four freshmen died of congestive heart failure age 84. In the 50s and early 60s, they released recordings, made film and TV appearances, and performed in concert. June 3rd, Lonely Boy, and thank you for being a friend, singer-songwriter Andrew Gold died in his sleep, apparently from heart failure at age 59. June 12th, Carl Gardner Sr., best known as the uh, foremost member and founder of The Coasters, died of congestive heart failure and vascular dementia, according to their website. Hits included Charlie Brown, Yakety Yak, and Along Came Jones. June 3rd, Jack Kevorkian died at age 83. He publicly championed a terminal patient's right to die via physician-assisted suicide. He said he had assisted in at least 130 of those. May 25th, Jeff Conaway, known for roles in the movie Grease and TV's Taxi and Babylon 5, died at age 60. Autopsy results are pending. And among the women, Dana, Invasion of the Body Snatchers Winter, died May 5th of congestive heart failure at age 79. I'll have more on her during another program. And these women who appeared in movies and TV in recent decades died in recent weeks, all in their 80s. Elaine Stewart, Seda Thompson, Mary Murphy, Barbara Stewart, Phyllis Avery, and Mina Dell. And we have some um, last-minute entries. The Major League Baseball website says that Dick Williams, Hall of Fame baseball manager, died July 7th at age 82. And uh, the latest broadcasts say that he, the cause of death was a ruptured aortic aneurysm. He took three teams to the World Series, including the San Diego Padres. And another late entry, she founded one of the best-known rehab centers in the U.S., the Betty Ford Clinic. The former First Lady died July 8th at age 93, the wife of President Gerald Ford. Betty was the outspoken and much admired. She herself overcame alcoholism and addiction to pills. And we have yet one more here. And Smitty, who is that? That's right. Uh, Ian, thank you. Uh, I'd I'd like to do a little uh, obituary on Leo Meyerson. The amateur radio community suffered a great loss on April 13th, 2011, with the passing of Leo Meyerson. Uh, This is just a little over a month after he celebrated his 100th birthday. For those who are longtime amateur or ham radio operators, Leo's name is a familiar one and one that has been around for many, many years. Many people who were not ham radio operators were uh, also familiar with Leo Meyerson as a dealer in shortwave radio equipment. He defined the present day of marketing amateur radio equipment and was the founder of World Radio Labs 
an electronics and equipment dealership in Council Bluffs, Iowa. But let's go back to the beginning of the Leo Meyerson story. Leo I. Meyerson was born on March 7, 1911 in Omaha, Nebraska. Leo operated the first broadcast station in Council Bluffs, Iowa in 1924 when he was 13 years old. He built the transmitter from plans he found in an issue of Radio Digest magazine. He played records and the piano over his station. He did this until he found out it was illegal to operate an unlicensed station. But in those early years, there was not much regulation, as radio was still something new. Four years later, in 1928, Leo acquired his first amateur radio license, W9GFQ. Years later, when the call districts in the United States were reorganized, he received the call letters he would have for many years, W0GFQ. At the age of 15 years, Leo became an accomplished theater organist, accompanying silent movies in the Council Bluffs area. He built his first ham station under the stairway in the basement of the family home, Back in that time period, there was no commercial radio transmitters or receivers to be purchased. If a person was interested in amateur radio, they practically had to build all of their equipment from scratch. Leo's father was a grocer, and he wanted Leo to carry on the store. By this time, Leo had decided he wanted to go into the radio business. So in 1934, Leo's father loaned him $1,000 to start his radio business, with the condition that if Leo failed, he would return and work with his father in the store. Leo's next move was to go to Chicago. There, in a district known as Radio Row, a place where radio stores, parts houses, and surplus stores were all centered, Leo set about purchasing all kinds of radio and electronic parts, transformers, resistors, condensers, and any and all parts he could find. He also purchased surplus gear and some shortwave receivers from Sears, which were not selling very well. He got them at a good price. Leo believed he could provide a valuable service to the radio amateurs across the country, he recalled that in the days when he ordered radio parts before he started his store, he would have to wait four or five weeks for the delivery of his order. Shipments were slow and parts were in short supply. Leo began soliciting amateurs in the five-state Midwest area with a personal touch. He began to get a few responses. Leo figured there would be a market for transmitter kits, the reason being that all of the necessary parts to build one were not always available. Leo's hunch was correct, and he put together some simple kits, and before long, orders for the kits began trickling in. Leo was surprised when some of his customers began asking if he would wire some of the units and send them as completed transmitters. This is what prompted Leo to start manufacturing in the period of, of 1939 and 1940. And around that time, Leo and his staff put together a transmitter called the WRL-70. Around 100 or 200 of these units were built, and plans were made for a higher-power transmitter to be sold. But just as things were getting into high gear, World War II started, and Leo was forced to stop production of these units. During the war, Leo, along with another ham radio operator, started a company called Scientific Radio Products. The company made quartz crystals for the military during the war. At the conclusion of the war, Leo let his partner take over Scientific Radio Products, and Leo got back into transmitter manufacturing. The end of the war brought a great demand for all types of amateur radio equipment, and Leo was happy to be a part of the effort to meet this demand. Leo's company, WRL, or World Radio Labs, began building the famous Globe series of amateur transmitters. Various models were known as Globe Scout, Globe King, and Globe Champion. Later, Leo opened Globe Electronics, another company, so that they could sell products to other companies. Throughout that great era of post-war prosperity, World Radio Labs was the place to order ham radio equipment and shortwave equipment in the country. 
I have a collection of radio news magazines and some QSL magazines from the late 40s and 1950s. You could always find a clever ad from Leo and World Radio Labs in those publications. Leo's face was superimposed on a cartoon figure, and he always advertised the best prices, liberal trade-in allowance on used equipment, and easy credit terms to allow ham operators to get on the air fast with quality equipment. Another well-remembered item from WRL was the radio reference map that Leo sold. This was a map of the United States with time zones and amateur call zones marked out. Usually it had a picture of Leo in the lower corner. Countless ham radio operators had one of these maps in their ham shack, or in layman's terms, the location where the ham station was installed. Leo's business thrived until 1970 when he sold his companies. In his later years, Leo lived in retirement in Omaha, Nebraska and Palm Springs, California. On February 24, 2011, Leo was celebrated by the Quarter Century Wireless Association in Palm Springs. Leo very much enjoyed the festivities and good wishes that were accorded to him. It was a time to salute and honor this great radio pioneer and to celebrate his 100th birthday. As we mentioned in the beginning of this piece, Leo passed away suddenly on the evening of April 13, 2011. The shock of Leo's passing was magnified in contrast to the wonderful party he had been given and the enjoyment of that event. Leo I. Meyerson will live on in the equipment he built and sold. Many of those units are still in service or in collections now. He is remembered for being a friend to the radio amateur and to the electronics enthusiast of another era here in the United States. I would like to express my gratitude to Ray Osterwald, editor and publisher of Electric Radio Magazine, for his permission to quote from past issues of his fine publication. I also wish to thank Bob Heil and Barry Wiseman, who wrote the articles used in compiling this report. In addition, Bob Heil took the great photo of Leo Meyerson at his 100th birthday, which we feature on our website. Now, if you like vintage amateur radio equipment or boat anchors, as they are affectionately called, or if you long for the days of great technical articles about vintage radio equipment, or if you're interested in AM broadcasting of ham radio, I urge you to have a look at Electric Radio Magazine. Each month, a new issue comes out with great articles and information on vintage radio. You can check out Electric Radio Magazine online at www.ermag.com. That's www.ermag.com. Well, Ian, Mike, a lot of uh, notables uh, that passed away, uh, Mr. Meyerson uh, being one of the radio pioneers, but Ian, you covered a lot of the... A lot of the actors, Peter Falk, and I always thought Peter Falk and James Arness would be around forever for some odd reason. <laughs> well, certainly James Arness. He, he, looked, he looked tough enough. He did. <laughs> did you follow Peter Falk's career, Ian, when he was living? I, I followed some of it. I know he got an Emmy for that um, that uh, show on the Dick Powell yes. show called uh, The Price of Tomatoes. He got a number of Emmys. He appeared on Twilight Zone. That's wow. right. And we are a nostalgia show, and we try and bring up the correlations, especially when we lose someone notable. And we we do the obituary that you do so so well so fine, and I uh, wanted to throw around the fact that Peter Falk got his start. He got his start in show business playing thugs, hoodlums. He actually was nominated for an Academy Award for the gangster uh, Abe Relis in Murder Incorporated. Remember 1960 Murderers Inc. I know of it. Yeah, Murder Inc. was 1960s, and he was actually nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting. Best Supporting Actor. He came back in two years playing another thug or hoodlum uh, in Pocket Full of Miracles with Glenn Ford. I believe that that was the year later, 1961. Again, was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. 
So he started his career as a thug, as a hoodlum, and he ended his career as a savvy detective. <laughs> and in between those uh, two periods of time, figure 50 years of a great career, not 50, probably 45. He, he had retired a number of years ago because of his health. He had played just about every role and played dramas, comedies, musicals. He was in It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Mm-hmm. Remember that he's a taxi the cab taxi driver? Cab driver hated exactly. cops. Yes, yeah. Hated cops. <laughs> ended his career as a cop. Interesting correlation, and we've lost, if we do go into a little deeper nostalgia reminiscing, we've we've lost the third of the triple crown of what NBC had as a mystery franchise back in the 70s. I know you remember this, Ian. Uh, the name, I'm trying to think right away. The NBC was, Wednesday mystery movie. The NBC the mystery movie. movie. The there mystery movie, yes. Absolutely. There was a triple crown. Right. There was McLeod with Dennis Weaver, right. McMillan and Wife with Rock Hudson, and, of course, Peter Falk as Columbo. Uh, Columbo lasted years longer than the other two, but the stars of all three now are gone. Right, you're right. And I only wish they would bring the NBC mystery movie back because that was some of the best television viewing. That was a neat concept, too, where you yes. had, you know, which, where you These had... anthology. Yeah, where you had a rotating, the, all the shows rotated. You know, yes. you remember that. It's funny because they did the same thing in the 50s right. yes. with comedy. Right, they, yes. They right. brought it back with, with, from comedies in the 50s to melodramas or, or police uh, procedurals, they called them. They actually had one added to mystery, NBC mystery movie called Police Story. A friend of mine, Joe Wambaugh, wrote those. But these ran six seasons, seventy or seven seasons, 1971 through 78. And remember how quirky the role of Columbo was when you first saw that in the 70s. And I, I'm a police procedural, police TV junkie. This guy in a rumpled overcoat. <laughs> And he played it straight, and all the time, all these cagey villains thought they had uh, run circles around him. But during the whole hour, 90 minutes of the show, you would watch this frumpled guy in this messed-up sports car with this ugly bloodhound of his, watch him disassemble the fiendish, clever cover stories of all these loathsome rats who considered themselves so much smarter than him. And a great uh, Peter Falk moment is Columbo. When he drives his car into a parking area that has a valet, or a valet, valet as they say, yeah. uh, and uh, he gets out of the car, he walks away, he walks back, he says, hey, don't I need a ticket for that? And the valet says, I'll remember it. I'll remember it. <laughs> yeah, that, and yeah. I believe that that car is on display somewhere. Where is it, Las Vegas Imperial Palace? Somewhere, Paris? I heard it's on display somewhere. The car is yeah. on display yeah. as, with the, as with the trench coat. Ah. I also heard that there were plans for another upcoming Columbo special, uh, Columbo TV movie, which, of course, did not materialize because Peter Falk was too ill. Do you remember we had Columbo's wife there for a while? Yes, Mrs. Columbo. Mrs. Yeah. Columbo, yeah. absolutely. Played by the same woman that was in one of the Star Trek spinoffs. I can't think of her name. I can't think of her name either right now. But, we'll have um, to look that up. Does anyone nowadays have that type of, of professional range of a Peter Falk? I can't think of someone who could start off their career with, in craft suspense theater go to have gun will travel, jump over to the untouchables, make an appearance on the Twilight Zone, appear as Joe on the Barbara Stanwyck show, work in wagon train on a western, come back as a doctor on Ben Casey, become an attorney in the trials of O'Brien, work as a detective, of course, in Columbo, and be on the Dean Martin celebrity roast. You know, Peter Falk, you know, an American original. True. We salute. Yep. We salute and remember him and everyone else who we've recently lost. Well, I think it's time to wrap this show up. Uh, Ian, good work as usual. Excellent work all the way around, Smitty. Thanks, Mike. Good to have you over there. That was yes. uh, 
very important pioneer and very important, Mr. Myerson. Stuff we will love, be, Mr. Yeah, Myerson. We'll, we'll sure remember him for years to come. Okay, and we thank you, the listeners, for supporting us and keeping those emails coming and uh, friending us on Facebook. We are the Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight. We are part of the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. You can reach us by email at galaxymoonbeamnightsight at gmail.com. Our website is galaxymoonbeamnightsight.com. We love those friends out there, wherever you may be in the Facebook galaxy. Ha <laughs> ha, hint, hint. <laughs> uh, but we are now on Facebook, and you can visit the Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside page on Facebook, facebook.com slash galaxymoonbeamnightside. Friend us if you like us. Uh, if you don't like us, uh, just send those emails. Yeah. We get a few, and uh, well, it's the 80-20 rule. 80% of them are, are feel-good emails. The rest of them, uh, people would rather maybe watch something else. But we remind them, you're not watching us, you're listening to us. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and we do encourage everybody who's listened to us and like what they hear to send us ideas for more stuff or just stay tuned, sit back, and listen. We come out on podcast about once a week, and we're always looking for things to talk about. And since we profile the things of the last 50 or 60 years, we're never going to run out. So again, on behalf of Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside, I'm Mike. I'm Smitty. And I'm Ian. And we'll be talking at you next time on Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. <laughs>